Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Aaron Benanoff, som er en up and coming stjerne blandt venstreorienterede økonomer. Aaron Benanoff er født og opvokset i Kalifornien, hvor han på den ene side blev meget optaget af arbejdsløshedens historie som ung. Spurgte sig selv, hvordan kan det egentlig være, at folk i forskellige perioder bliver arbejdsløse? Hvad er det for faktorer, der udløser arbejdsløshed? På den anden side, der så han hele tech-industrien udvikle sig. Hans egen far forskede faktisk i automation og forlod det akademiske felt for i stedet for at begive sig ind i startup-industrien og blev en del af hele det miljø, som kulminerede med Silicon Valley-revolutionen og de store tech-giganter. Og de to ting var lidt sideordnet i Aaron Benanoffs liv indtil i 2010'erne, hvor der begyndte at komme den her meget stærke fortælling om, at det var i virkeligheden den teknologiske udvikling, der skabte arbejdsløsheden. At det var alle maskinerne, som tog jobsene fra vores kammerater i arbejderklassen. Og det er jo altid en stærk tendens at sige, at den teknologiske udvikling afgør alt, for så kan du bare se på teknikken og forklare verden derfra. Men den her fortælling blev så stærk, så Barack Obama også sagde, at det var den store trussel i fremtiden. Andrew Yang, som var demokratisk præsidentkandidat i 2020, gjorde det til sit helt store slagnummer at ville bekæmpe automation. Der er faktisk folk både på højrefløjen og på venstrefløjen, som siger, at det er den store trussel mod vores arbejdsstyrke i fremtiden. Men Aaron Benanoff, han tog sig for at undersøge, om det nu også virkelig kunne passe. Hvad er egentlig dokumentationen for, at det er maskinerne, der tager vores arbejdspladser? Det er den undersøgelse, som vi vil tale om i det følgende. Vi vil også tale om, hvad man kan gøre ved det, og hvad der er konsekvenserne af det. Jeg vil ikke røbe konklusionerne her. Jeg kan kun sige, at de bliver overrasket. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening and welcome to you, Aaron Benanov, who's with us from Berlin. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. And thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, you wrote the book Automation and the Future of Work, which I think is a very impressive work because it has an enormous scope. But actually, you can read it in about four or five hours. It's not a very long book, but it's very, very convincing. It has a lot of documentation in it and i think it's important for us because uh, you kind of refute the great narrative of automation which is also very influential here and and you have another answer to the question why the market is unable to provide jobs for so many of the workers but i first want to ask you if there's kind of a personal background for the story because you mentioned in the beginning of of the book that that your father He he left a career in academia to try his luck in the startup culture in the the beginning of the 90s, I think. So I think if there's a personal background to the book. Yeah, so I actually, I grew up around computers in the 80s. Uh, my dad was a computer scientist and he was working on automation, actually. He was working on getting computers to solve logic proofs. And then um, in the course of the 90s, he... He left that and he went into the private sector. And I spent the summer working at all of these tech startups with him, um, you know, kind of learning how it was done and the weird way, the interface between business and technology at that time. You had a lot of people uh, managing computer programmers who had no idea how computers worked. And then, of course, you know, the big crash came in 2001. So those were really influential experiences for me as I embarked on a career. Uh, to study the economy, you know, and especially to study these kinds of questions about economic growth and technological change. 
So, so what was the background for this book, which came out about 20 years after this uh, experience with your father's business uh, adventure? Yeah. So I, um, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a historian of unemployment. So I was studying the history of why there's so many people in the world uh, who need work and can't find it. And as I was working on that topic, I was impressed in the mid 2000s, in the 2010s, mid 2010s, that suddenly there was this huge discourse of people really interested in this question. They were saying they were focusing on the same kinds of phenomena that I was studying, you know, people who are having a lot of trouble finding jobs, job insecurity, um, rising economic inequality and the rise of these new kind of robber barons. Um, so they were interested in the same phenomena, but they had a very different explanation for why it was happening, namely that it was all driven by automation. And so it felt to me like this really good opportunity to intervene into a really important question and kind of raise awareness uh, about what I think is really going on uh, with job insecurity today. It's a very interesting discourse, this automation theory, because you have some people, you have some proponents on the left and you have some proponents on the right. And I remember we were following the the primaries for the last presidential election very closely here in Denmark, because at least me and my son, we were hoping so much for a left wing candidate to emerge. And we thought this was such a very inspirational moment with a lot of new ideas. And there was Andrew Yang, and he was he was talking about automation. And every time he was saying, well, the big problem for this country is we're losing all the jobs because of AI and digital development and, and automation, there was kind of an atmosphere that he was telling the tough truth that no one else would face, that he was kind of, uh, he was taking uh, the problems head on. And I remember Obama also share, sharing this uh, this discourse. So, so how would you characterize this discourse? Where does it come from? You know, it's interesting you bring up Yang because I read his book, The War on Normal People, before he announced his presidential run. So I was like annotating, you know, <laughs> his ideas and kind of including it in my wider picture uh, before he became this huge star um, on the national and I guess also international stage. But yeah, it's really fascinating in part because, you know, it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, there's been periods in the past where people have become very concerned in the 1930s and the 1950s and 60s. And again, in the 1980s that we were entering this era of like incredible technological change that was going to bring about the end of work as we know it. And it's very strange sometimes if you go back and read, for example, a book that made a, a big splash, Jeremy Rifkin's The End of Work from 1995. So much of it sounds exactly the same. And some of the people who are kind of proponents of the idea today are even quoted in this Rifkin book from, you know, whatever, 25 years ago now. So it's a, it's a recurrent topic. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Like things that are talking about could happen at any time. Like we could have these technological breakthroughs that really dramatically um, uh, eliminate work. It could happen. I'm not, I'm not saying it could never happen. I'm just saying it's not happening now. <laughs> at least the evidence isn't there uh, for that claim. So which uh, which side is it on today? This where is it a left wing agenda or a right wing agenda, or is it just a shared kind of uh, assumption? It's a shared view, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's always people who um, 
who really look to technology as a source of social change. And there's also just, you know, there's all kinds of people who are into, in the US we would say popular science magazines, you know, just yeah. understanding the world through a technological lens. And it's very appealing because in a lot of ways it, it, it captures something that at least potentially is very optimistic about our time. And I think that when the automation discourse arose in the 2010s, it kind of collected a number of people from across the political spectrum who were actually pretty optimistic about what the future could bring. They were saying that, you know, if we, if we don't take a hold of these transformations, then it's going to be a disaster. But their basic, basic message was that, you know, technological change could be bringing about a radically better world. Um, so I think that that's something, you know, really interesting that kind of unites all of these people uh, across the political spectrum. So no, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's really associated just with one political camp. Uh, what we've seen, and I'll just mention since the book came out, my book, I mean, my book came out in the context of a new kind of backlash against, or some people call it a tech clash against Silicon Valley. So, you know, up through the 2010s, Uber was saying, we're transforming driving the, the platforms and we're going to um, eventually, and pretty soon we're actually gonna replace all these drivers with self-driving cars. And people thought, wow, I mean, this is really the wave of the future. That turned out to be an incredible uh, uh, wrong bet. We still don't have self-driving cars. People are now saying we probably won't have even 9% of cars on the road self-driving until something like 2040. Um, but that experience was part of this reflection where people started to turn around and say, hey, what about these workers? Like what's happening to people who actually work all these jobs that are supposedly about to be automated and discovering that their working conditions were actually really bad and that companies were taking advantage of kind of the new context of the platform economy to not provide their workers with basic uh, protection. So we're now entering a kind of a new phase where I think people are more skeptical of technologies. So it's a little hard from today's world almost to put yourself back in that mindset of like, you know, six or seven years ago when people were just like, wow, this is the future is now, it's already happening in a good way. <laughs> now, they're worried. now they say that, but now they're really scared. <laughs> Well, well, I'm, I must confess that that I share some of these uh, assumptions, or at least I have shared them before I read your book, because I have a son who's 16, and he's a big Bernie Sanders supporter, and he claims to be a socialist whenever he gets the chance. But So I tell him, like I tell my daughter who's 19, that I don't want them to buy their clothes online, because I don't want them to run the retail stores out of business. And I don't want them, when we're in the supermarket, I don't want them to take the automated cash register. I want them to go with their people. So I've been kind of telling them that we should be very much aware of what we do as consumers, because we don't, do not want to take part of a development that, that will drive people out of work and that will give us cities without stores and that will give us you know, stores without, without people. A am I actually wrong when I tell them that? Well, I mean, I, I've never been so uh, much a big supporter of that kind of idea that we can shape these big economic trends through our own personal consumer choices. Um, but I think that, you know, actually in the limited case of what you're talking about, about retail stores getting replaced with online shops and stuff, I mean, that is definitely a trend that's happening. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say on that particular thing that you're, that you're wrong. I mean, it is true that um, retail employees, at least in the U.S., is really flatlined and even declined a bit, whereas uh, employment in these Amazon warehouses and in warehouses in general 
is really growing. So it's not that people are disappearing. It's that, you know, it's not, sorry, it's not just that jobs are disappearing as such, um, but a lot of retail jobs are now being displaced by kind of um, wholesale jobs, like in warehouses and stuff. And what matters in the end, I think what you're really getting at here is the quality of our lives, the quality of our jobs and all of those questions. And in a sense, I guess part of what I want to say is that those aren't determined in some pure way by technologies. Actually, there's a lot more choice that we have uh, in terms of how that interface between technology and human workers uh, unfolds. So it's not it's not such a technologically determinist story. No, and I, to, to be honest, I also think for me as a parent, it's very much about all the time teaching them about the capitalism that they're engaging with, that that every choice you have is connected to a bigger picture. And especially I think here in Denmark, where you can get the feeling that everything is shiny and happy, it's very important to you know, connect to, to the other part, part, part of the world. Uh, but but you're, you're, you're basically, you refute this thesis of, of, of automation. And I know it's a, you, it's a very detailed argument. It's a very well-documented argument. But what is the short uh, version of, of why it's not automation that's taken away our jobs? Yeah. So first of all, it's important to say that automation and technological change are just constant features of capitalist economies. You know, I mean, if people are going to say what, you know, they look at all the bad things about capitalism. What is it good at? Well, it's good at constantly increasing labor productivity, which is basically like the measure um, of, uh, of technological change in the economy. It's like, how much are our workers producing per hour in terms of goods and services? And how fast is that increasing over time? It's the main source of economic growth in the economy. So the claim the automation uh, theorists are making is that we're living in a time of incredible technological change, that workers are being replaced by machines left and right. If that were the case, and sometimes this is a little confusing for people, um, but if that were the case, then labor productivity should be growing really fast. Uh, and the reason is that if you imagine a workplace, like let's say, you know, one of these um, supermarkets or something like that, and more and more of the workers were getting replaced by machines, it would seem like the remaining workers were producing more and more value per hour of work. Because you just take the total amount of value and you divide it by the number of hours. So if machines are the ones doing the job, that will appear like the productivity is just growing at an incredible pace. That's just not what you see in the statistics. In reality, we live in an era of rather slow productivity growth um, compared to past periods. So in the United States, labor productivity in the last 10 or 20 years has grown at half the pace it grew at uh, in decades past. And in countries in Europe, it's actually even more extreme. Labor productivity growth is like a fifth of what it used to be. Uh, four or five decades ago. So you have actually an economy where instead of this radical increase in productivity growth that you expect to see in an era of, you know, incredible new technologies, what we're seeing is um, stagnating uh, labor productivity growth. And that's a really surprising outcome. It is the smoking gun of um, of the fact that this just isn't happening. And I'm not the only person to point that out. There's a small group of you know economists who've been working on the same problem. And there's many other uh, facts that you can cite. Like, for example, people used to change their occupations a lot more frequently in the past than they do today. Today, people tend to be stuck in the same jobs. Um, a lot of the inequality that exists among workers 
isn't due to um, workers like losing their jobs and then only finding very bad work. That is, a, that is a part of it. But another feature is widening inequalities within occupations. So for example, in my line of work, I'm, you know, I'm a professor uh, or I will be one soon. Um, you have this big bifurcation of uh, the labor market. Some people are teaching and they're making big salaries as professors. Other people are working as adjuncts and lecturers and they're making very low salaries. And so that's a big feature of why inequality is increasing. And none of those phenomena fit with the story that the automation theorists are telling, if that makes sense. Yeah, de de defi definitely. You know, I read a book a couple of years ago by Mark Levinson, the historian. It was called An Extraordinary Time. And his point was that that these 30 years that everybody's referring to as kind of the ideal, you know, the golden age or les trente glorieuses, Wirtschaftswunder, they call it in Germany, where you are right now, that they were actually the extraordinary period in, in, in time. And, and that we keep comparing our growth rates and our productivity rates today with this very special, these three decades after mm. the Second World War. And, you know, I was born in 74. So I grew up with that as kind of the background. You know, we were always expecting the economy, the economy to be like it was in the preceding decade. So in all my life, social democracy has been in crisis because you expect them to, to deliver. Uh, what, what do you think about, about this view that it's actually that what we're going through now is kind of normal and that we're just mm -hmm. measuring up against something that was extraordinary? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really interesting point. And in some ways, I think there's a lot to it, because if you compare the growth rates of the past 40 years and you go back before, you know, you have to go back really far. You go back before the world wars. You look at, you know, the kind of Belle Epoque, the turn of the of the 20th century. You will find that the economy grew at about the same rate then as it grows today. Um, but what people kind of miss when they say that is, first of all, back then, a large part of the population across Europe and even in the United States was still in agriculture. So they weren't depending on finding jobs to survive. At the same time, outside of like the wealthy, you know, industrial core, most of the world was like colonies and they were being prevented from industrializing. They were actually deindustrializing, and most people were locked into these very exploitative colonial economies. And then even, you know, so, so there's a much smaller share of the world's population that needs jobs back then. And they were growing at about the same pace we are now, but even that group, like the amount of insecurity and inequality in the economy back then, was extreme. I mean, that was the era of the founding of all the socialist parties. That was the era when, you know, just massive um, demands for social change and huge kind of crises of, uh, you know, uh, social unrest were taking place. So the idea that there's some previous era that, you know, this is more normal, that you have to redefine your sense of normal, then normal for capitalism becomes you know, an era of extreme job insecurity, social turmoil and unrest and calls for social change. So, you know, what made those 30 years glorious um, if they were, and there's actually a lot of problems with that era that that term doesn't really capture, but what made them glorious from the perspective of, you know, those societies was really that the economy grew fast enough to improve job security for a lot of people. And the truth is the economy has to grow pretty fast to create that kind of sense of um, shared prosperity. And if we can't get back to that kind of era, then that's a big problem for the type of economies we have today. Also, it should be said, I actually think that the economies today are now growing slower 
that you know the trend is actually now towards slower growth and stagnation. It's not a steady two percent per year. The economy is actually growing at a slower pace, and that's a big problem if if the economy really is stagnating. You know, a lot of people here, myself included, before I read your book, actually, we would say, well, we're losing jobs here uh, because, like you also said in the book, industry was the big engine of economic growth, and we haven't really found something that could replace industry, industrial pr- production. And But we've been saying, well, uh, well, actually, it's because they're industrializing in China and in India and Indonesia. And, and I think it's a politically very powerful and potentially actually dangerous narrative because, you know, they, then we don't want to share with the Chinese and we want the we want the Chinese to decarbonize now and we want the Indians, you know. And, and your point actually in the book is that they're not, that, that they experience something that is similar to what we're experiencing. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I tell people that, they are often so surprised because people really believe, you know, in the United States, the they say China. Now they had said uh, Mexico in the past, right? It was just obvious to people that if jobs were disappearing and factories were closing down, it was bec- in manufacturing and industry, it was because they were moving overseas. And What I show in the book is that actually all of those places are also deindustrializing. They're also um, seeing the share of their workforce that's employed in manufacturing uh, decline over time. So, you know, the United States started to deindustrialize around 1970, and um, Mexico started to deindustrialize around 1985. And large parts of the world outside of the um, wealthy core countries, the OECD countries, have been deindustrializing now for decades. And China, which is a country everyone thinks, okay, that's got to be where all the jobs are going. China actually deindustrialized in the 90s. They saw a significant drop off, like they lost tens of millions of manufacturing jobs because all of these old Mao, you know, industries built up during the Maoist era were declining and not enough new jobs were being created anywhere they were being created in a completely different region to make up for it in the in the economy-wide statistics. But then from 2003 to 2013, China did reindustrialize. It's one of the most impressive reindustrializations probably in history. Um, but then from 2013 onward, China also began to deindustrialize. And in fact, according to the United Nations, and this is not, I don't have to cherry pick any data to say this. This is just the standard account that is um, not very widely understood. But according to the United Nations, the entire world has been deindustrializing for the past nine years or so. So this is a you know already a decade um, that 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 jobs are not going from here elsewhere. Uh, they are just disappearing from the face of the earth. And that is a really surprising phenomenon that I think people need to get their heads around. It also, I should say, when you hear that, you think, well, isn't the automation story true? Isn't that just like the evidence that it's true? And it's true that technological change plays a role in that story. But when we look at the data, we don't see that, you know, the reason why these jobs are disappearing is because productivity is growing faster than before. Like that workers, you know, productivity is rising faster and faster. It's actually that um, the growth of the economy, like the output, the, the rate of expansion of the manufacturing economy is slowing down and slowing down. So I say in the book that the industrial growth engine of not just the West, but of the world economy is increasingly sputtering and running out of steam. And that has huge implications for uh, the economy as a whole. 
Yeah, and of course, huge implications for our political imaginaries as well. And the way we discuss society and the way we see ourselves as part of the world, you know, it has a lot of implications that, I, that I'm not ready to process intellectually yet, but, and probably not will be for, for, for quite a while. So, so the overall explanation, I know this is a very, very compl- complex history because you cannot isolate uh, f- factors, but, but one of them is, is what you called overcapacity in, in world markets for, for manufactured goods. Can you explain this, this overcapacity? Yeah, so as you said, I think there are multiple factors um, and they interact in complex ways. But one of the factors that I really highlight in the book is that uh, more and more countries basically adopted the strategy of trying to expand their industrial sectors to, you know, as a way to um, develop their economies, as a way to connect to the world market. Um, Basically, agriculture and mineral production became a worse and worse way to try to be part of the world market because there was massive overproduction, you know, I could already say it, of things like coffee, of uh, timber, all of these kinds of um, uh, agricultural and kind of raw material products were flooding the markets and causing prices to fall, forcing all these countries around the world to try to find new ways to stay part of the world market. And what that meant over time is just that more and more countries, more and more firms in those countries and more and more workers were competing in international markets to sell manufactured goods. And of course, it's a little more complicated than that because they were all part at different levels of these global supply chains, right? They're not all competing in exactly the same way. Uh, Many of them are competing to be suppliers for the big multinational corporations. But the result of all of these countries trying to enter the market at the same time was that um, these markets became hyper-competitive. Prices fell really strongly in these markets compared to in the rest of the economy. And as a result, Essentially, these firms were not making that much money. And as a result of that, they stopped investing so much in expanding their production. And that's really the story. So you have massive oversupply and overcompetition in in industry that's partially propelled by an even worse condition of oversupply in global agriculture. And the fact that of this oversupply and overcompetition meant that um, basically firms were saying, There's no point in us making big new investments and expansion. We're going to kind of work with the capacity we have, but we're not going to invest in expanding production very much, even as the competition is intensifying dramatically. So that's that that big story. That's why you have this running down of the industrial growth engine. And if I could just summarize it in a simple way, I would say that, you know, people are focused on technology like accelerating, like the frontier of new technologies emerging. But the big story in my view of the last 50 years is actually the spread of existing technologies around the world. The the big story is is basically a globalization story. It's a story about more and more firms and more and more countries being able to produce the same kinds of goods. Whereas in the past, it would have been very difficult to find a supplier who could produce all of these different kinds of industrial goods in most of the countries of the world, right? That capacity just didn't exist, but now it does exist and it's competing uh, in the world market to find a little space for itself. And that that really is a surprising conclusion actually to, to, to what we're witnessing. I think for 
from an ecological standpoint, uh, immediately you're happy to hear that. Well, well, it's not; it doesn't keep growing. But then you realize maybe it's not such a happy story, any, in anyways. But I think the big question here, also, I think here at least here in Denmark, is that: Do you see, like, if you imagine a real green transition, an ambition, ambitious green transition, that means transforming the way we produce energy, the way we transport ourselves, our housing, everything, you know. Do you see that it has the potential of kind of a reindustrialization, and mm-hmm. that that could create new jobs and a new kind of growth that doesn't smash the planet, that doesn't destroy the foundation of life? Do you see that 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 potential here? I think that's a really good question because obviously the big question looking at the next 10 years is the question of the green transition. We have to as quickly as possible, get off of fossil fuels. And that's gonna require big changes to industry, right? A lot of, um, not just, you know, industrial production itself, which is very energy intensive and requires a lot of fossil fuels to be burned, but also obviously the kinds of products that they're producing, right? Are very energy intensive in their use, like cars and so on. So we have to really transform um, the industrial structure of society if if we're gonna survive. and have good lives and our children. Um, But I think that, you know, when people think about that in terms of reindustrializing, it's like, what are you, what are you after? You're after a world where people have better job security, where, you know, their jobs are more satisfying, where they feel like the work they do has a social purpose, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think you're gonna get that by like increasing industrial jobs. Cause I think if you look at, you know, the sixties and seventies, you'll see a lot of the reason why people didn't like those jobs because they were dangerous, they were dirty and they were stultifying and boring, right? So I don't think that bringing back those jobs is a solution, but I think the impulse behind that The idea that we want to get to a world where people feel like their work is worthwhile, that it's secure, that they get to use skills in their work and so on. That is a major goal we should have. And my point, which I think is, you know, in a way, a really obvious point from the perspective of ecology is that we need to get to a world where um, those kinds of things, like having security in our lives and, you know, having work that we feel contributes something meaningful to the world, where those things are disconnected from economic growth. That is to say, the thing about capitalism, the society we live in now, is how dependent it is on growth to generate basic security for the population. It's only when the economy is growing quickly and you have full employment that you get that basic sense of security kind of spreading through the the bulk of the population. Um, But that's not necessary. We don't actually have to organize our economy that way. We could live in a world where people feel secure in their lives and have good quality work where uh, we're not so dependent on growth to generate those experiences. And, and I should say that the ending of your book is something that is very rare, I find, in, in leftist academic work. I, I, I hope it's okay that I call it leftist, or at least it belongs to kind of, of a Marxist tradition, sure. uh, is that there's a, an, there's a very positive view of There's a view of a world that is where abundance is a positive phenomenon, a post-scarcity world that's, that's, that's very hopeful. And we see that very rarely. And I just want to say how much I appreciate it. I appreciate that. And I think it's a very important political job to offer that kind of 
positions and, and scenarios for the future that you can convince others. There's there's another way of of uh, organizing organizing society. But another consequence that that of of this structural problem is that you see people on the left and on the right supporting universal basic income, mm. and they say, well, we can't we we are not able to share the jobs because we want fewer people to be very very productive, so we can't give give jobs jobs to everyone and and i think you have a it, you you strike a very fine balance in the book when you describe this this universal ba- basic income can can you describe your position on that mm, yeah i mean i think it's very interesting that support for ubi like support for the automation discourse it's really you know a, a something that crosses the political spectrum you have people on the right the center left and the left who are um, who are interested in UBI. And I always say to people like the basic impulse is good, right? I want to live in a world where no one feels insecure and where no one is in poverty, you know, and where we just solve those problems. And I also want to live in a world where people have universal benefits. Like they don't have to fight and prove that, you know, they need access to these benefits. That's really important. I think people often don't understand when they live in Europe, you know, how extreme the means testing is in America. Like if you're poor and you need services, the the hoops that you have to jump through in order to get help are so extreme that, you know, it would make a lot of people in Europe, it's just shocking how hard it is to access benefits there. So having universal benefits is something especially important to Americans. Um, My issue with it is really that, you know, UBI doesn't, there's a few things one could say about it, but UBI, it, it, from the perspective of the society we live in, it's really just another welfare program, right? It's a, for the right, it's a substitute for the existing welfare state. And for the left, it's an addition, it's a new part and maybe a better part of the welfare state. Um, but it's, it's basically a, a transformation of the welfare state. If the automation theorists were right. And we were entering this period of incredible growth and transformation, very high productivity, where we were just producing so many goods and services. And the only problem left in the economy was that people were unemployed and they couldn't, they didn't have any money to buy them. Then this UBI would be the perfect solution because you just say, okay, we just give people money and then they can buy all the goods and services being produced. It's a pure distribution problem. I'm saying, look, the reality is that we live in these stagnant economies that are experiencing like waves of austerity, you know, uh, in an effort to improve the business climate, like you have all of these efforts to kind of like um, reform the labor market, make workers more flexible and insecure, all of these kinds of things. From that perspective, it's really a production problem. It's a problem of production. It's a problem of the production system, not a problem of distribution. And from the perspective of the world we really live in, UBI is going to be one more uh, welfare program that's going to have to fight for its survival as we move through these waves of crises and slow growth, where politicians are saying, look, we can't afford all of this stuff. You know, So we don't live in that world that the automation theorists suggest. And that's why UBI won't be a silver bullet solution. I also think, you know, personally, I would also just say that to me, UBI is a lot like carbon taxes, you know, like there's a time when you think like the society is growing great, going great. All we need is just this one little fix. Like we just need a market in carbon or we just need to give poor people money. That will solve the problems. As we are facing up to this major climate crisis, we're starting to see that 
you know, that's not enough. Having a little mark, having a market in carbon isn't going to solve the problem. We need big investments. We need transformative industrial policy. We need to, you know, radically transform energy systems in our society. Another thing we're going to have to radically transform is housing in our society. We're going to have to build and retrofit a ton of housing, both because houses aren't weatherized, especially in the United States, but also because um, there's going to be a huge problem of climate refugees. There's going to be tons of people who are moving across the world in response to climate crisis. And UBI fails with respect to solving the problems of poverty and you know, giving people a good life in the same way that the carbon tax idea fails to solve the problem of climate change. In the end, to provide people with good housing, good health care, as we've seen in the current COVID crisis, we need big investments in transforming what those services look like. We can't solve the problem just from the consumer side of giving people money to buy services. We need big transformative investments to actually provide the services that people need to have a good life. So if that makes sense, that's kind of one of the ways I think UBI, um, it, it can only be a minor part of a much larger story of uh, social transformation. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Definitely. And I also think that it's very hard to imagine that people in the long run, that they would have, they would be strong political citizens if they don't contribute visibly to society. I mean, social contract requires that people contribute and that you see other people contribute. If you want to have, if you want to share tax burden and if you want to invest collectively and if you want to protect your community and the nature, then you must belong to it together. And I'd rather share the work than have very few people working and other living off their, their benefits. So from my personal perspective, I don't think it's it's not a model of solidarity. It's something that will leave the rich for a while, that will give them stability and peace. And it's that's why Bismarck, he liked the welfare state, basically, you know, that that's, that's basically it. Another phenomenon I've been very curious about what you think about is this uh, great resignation that you see in in, in, mm. in In, in in America, because we usually say here in Denmark, because, you know, we have very high minimum wage, uh, which is good for something, but also has problems with it. it's difficult for in, immigrants to get jobs here, for, mm. for instance. But we usually say that you have full employment in America, that your unemployment rates are so are so low. But we say, well, then you have the, then you have working poor. Like Bernie says that it's not fair in economy. We have to have two jobs to to just make ma- make a living. But what what? How should we understand this movement now in America? I don't know if it, it if it is a movement really. But so many people leaving their jobs and they just seem to be leaving positions that they find not satisfying. Yeah, and I mean, if people are interested, I really recommend that you know. I know people have a lot of problems with this website for a lot of reasons, but I really recommend going on that uh, Reddit website and looking at that anti-work subreddit where you can see all of these people, mostly in America, just talking about their experience of this uh, great resignation. I find it totally fascinating because it's not so much, uh, I mean, people have a lot of different politics on there and you get a lot of sense of what the average American, you know, is thinking about uh, the job and their chances to change their jobs. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Basically in the United States, we have very limited unemployment benefits. And what that means is that people have to get jobs in order to survive. And the jobs on offer, a lot of those jobs are terrible. It's not only that they pay poor wages, it's that they offer really horrifyingly bad working conditions 
where people are just subjected to the worst forms of, um, you know, middle manager control. And also a major phenomenon in the U.S. is understaffing. So all of these places where people work are systematically understaffed. And then people are constantly being called in at the last minute on days off to, to take on shifts. So it's a way of just radically intensifying the work to purposefully hire too few people to handle the jobs. So what happened in the US is just that um, for a lot of reasons, uh, the labor supply has shrunk. So there just aren't as many people working right now. Partly that's because people have died. I mean, so many people have died or become incapacitated from COVID in the United States. Um, partly it's because people have found other ways to live and survive um, during you know, the, the long COVID period, uh, COVID era. But it's also because the government gave all this money to poor people. And it had these huge measurable effects on the savings of low income households. And that suddenly gave Americans this leg up in the labor market. It gave them some bargaining power that they just never had before. The consequence of like all the dislocations and the sudden need to rehire people, people refusing to go back to work and this savings people had accumulated, it was like as if unions had suddenly materialized in America that never existed before. Not in reality, but in their effect on workers' bargaining power. And so people just started walking away from their jobs. And it's a real phenomenon that people are standing up to their managers and their bosses, demanding raises, you know, looking for new work. It's all happening mostly at a very individual level because there aren't, you know, collective, um, there aren't as much collective actions. And actually a lot of the wage increases people are getting are being eaten up now by inflation. But I think it's a real insight into the nature of the American labor market, like you're saying. The thing that's a little bit sad about it is that it's likely to be temporary as people run out of savings, as these dislocations of the labor market kind of resolve themselves over time. I think we're likely to go back to unless there's a really big change in macroeconomic policy, which it doesn't look like we're going to get, uh, we're likely to go back to the norm of, you know, slow growth, massive underemployment and growing inequality. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same. That it's difficult to imagine some, you exploiting this moment in a transformative way when you don't have very, very strong institutions for collective action. But But still, the employers will know that they can leave. Uh, I have one last question for you, and it's a, it's a big, big question, and you have very short time, but I'm sorry. <laughs> it's that one year ago when Biden was inaugurated as president, I think first, many people here were very disappointed that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren didn't win. And I think we were hoping that the way Trump, he broke with neoliberalism, that there was a positive momentum for for, for real leftist structural change. Then then we saw what he was actually proposing and he was teaming up with Bernie and even Obama was saying that big structural change was needed in America at this moment. And I felt that COVID had revealed something that was shameful to, to, the, to the general public in America. And that was really a momentum. And maybe maybe Biden was the right man at the right time that he could transform the energy and the ideas of the movement into the mainstream and and make progressive progressive changes. And now I think people are very disappointed with him again. How should we see this first year from a progressive point of view? I think it's, I mean, you're right. The COVID period has just really opened up something big. And that big thing is basically in part that, you know, people are realizing that big transformative change requires this coordinated 
investment. They're calling it the revival of industrial policy, but you know what? It's just planning. It's just what, you know, on the East, <laughs> in the East, it's called five-year plans. In the West, it's called uh, industrial policy. And it's just this attention to this need to plan in a big way um, changes in the economy. And what you're seeing, which is not surprising to me, and it's what I wrote about in my book, is that, um, you know, when these big pushes are starting to be made, huge forces in the business community and in politics are arrayed against it. You know, even though we need this transformative change as quickly as possible to take place, the elite and the business elite, especially in the country, has a lot to lose uh, from those kind of changes taking place. And so even the very small proposal, ultimately, you know, it was bigger than we all expected, but it was very limited what Biden was proposing. It had a big number, but it was actually over many years. <laughs> so it wasn't that big, actually. But even that saw massive resistance, right? Huge resistance um, to try to block its passage. And I think it's a sign of the kind of re organized resistance we're going to face going forward when we try to fight for the real transformative change that we so obviously need today. But do you think the American left has the inspiration to keep on going? Because I, th I still think there is overall, if you see in a decade perspective, there is a kind of momentum for the left and a kind of an opening. You know, people recognize that climate is a vital problem and and the social contract. Do, do you think it has the that it will be dissolution now, or it has the inspiration to move on? There's no time for disillusionment, you know. I mean, the next uh, eight years are going to be some of the most important years in our lives. Uh, and so I think that what you're going to see is that people are going to rise to that challenge and that when they face these impediments and blockages, they're going to experiment with new ways to, to break through. So I have a lot of hope that people are not going to take this lying down and that they're going to fight for really transformative change in the years that, that are coming. Well, thank you. That's a very inspirational exit. Thank you very much. And you have several books coming out, I saw, on your webpage. So we'll follow what you're writing. And we just thank you for your studies and your analysis. Thank you for taking your time and talking to us. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk to you. Yeah, it's great. Det var min samtale med Aaron Benanoff fra Humboldt Universitetet i Berlin, som senere på året tager til Syracuse University, hvor han bliver professor i økonomisk historie. I næste uge skal jeg tale med den svenske professor i økologihistorie, Andreas Malm, som med forskellige bøger om klimakriser og marxisme er blevet en international superstjerne. Vi skal tale om det spørgsmål, som Andreas Malm sætter på spidsen i sin seneste bog, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Hvis det er sådan, at politik, som vi kender det, ikke løser klimakrisen, hvad kan vi så gøre ud over politik? Og i forlængelse af det, hvornår bliver det så berettiget at udøve vold mod de maskiner, der udøver vold mod vores naturgrundlag? Det er jo et vanskeligt spørgsmål og et farligt spørgsmål. Det er derfor, jeg glæder mig til at tage ordentligt fat i de næste uge af langsomme samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.